0: So grateful that you're here tonight. Uh, How was the dinner? Good communion tonight. That was awesome. Great worship as well. Just grateful that you're here tonight. I want to begin with a, a familiar poem that you may have heard, but a little different take on it. It goes like this. "'Twas the night of the Passover when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Blood had been painted on doorposts with care in hopes that the destroyer soon would be there. The Israelites were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of freedom Danced in their heads. In order to understand how the Gospel of John displays the death of Jesus, we must go back. Back before the arrest and garden and trial and betrayal. Back before the miracle of loaves and fish. Back before the miracle of raising Lazarus. Back before the camel hair coated, leather belted, honey and locust for lunch voice in the wilderness back before the prophets and kings, judges and temple and tabernacle, back before the conquest of Canaan and entering into the promised land, we must go back to Egypt. The Israelite people have been living under oppression by the Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire, but God has heard their cries and raises up Moses and Aaron and Miriam To lead the people out of slavery and into freedom. And yet, after the plagues of bloody water and frogs, gnats, flies, death to livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness, Pharaoh remained unmoved. He would not let the people go. But the tenth and final plague would prove most devastating. It would touch a nerve that could not be... Untouched, The event known as Passover. So I hope you brought your Bibles tonight. If you need it, we have Bibles in the back. What I want you to do is explore the following question with the people around you at your table. Read aloud first Exodus 11, 1 through 8 and 12, 21 through 23. And then discuss how is Jesus like the Passover lamb? Ready? Go. So in the Gospel of John, I know you were just reading out of Exodus, but in the Gospel of John, the author uses images and history from the book of Exodus to describe Jesus as the Passover lamb, the one whose blood means protection from death, that is, Eternal death, Jesus is the sacrificial offering of the Passover. He's what's called the Paschal Lamb, fulfilling the lamb's role in the Passover meal or death slash sacrifice and the exodus from slavery in Egypt, meaning freedom. We're going to go into that a lot deeper tonight. So hopefully everyone will leave with a a better understanding that we will all learn more from that. But tonight as we explore the death of Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're continuing what Jeff started last week, questioning the meaning of the cross. You know, a lot of times we we see people wearing crosses or churches have crosses on on the top of their steeple. And they, you know, we see them everywhere throughout town or throughout our, our world on social media But what does it actually mean? How does the death of Jesus on the cross reconcile us to God? How is that accomplished? And how do we understand it? What does Jesus' death on the cross mean for you and me? Last week, Jeff explored how at the cross, Jesus was taking our place. Jesus was taking our curse, clothing us and tearing heaven open for us. And tonight, we'll continue how at the cross, Jesus finishes, Jesus fulfills, and Jesus becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you're able to stand with me, why don't you stand as we read from John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. It says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. He's also on the cross at this point. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And Jesus, tonight as we come together to read about your death, to explore God's word and what it means for our lives, I'm so grateful that no one took your life from you, that you gave it up on your own accord, that you gave your life for us. And it has great meaning in that. Open our eyes to understand more than, than, oh, Jesus died for my sin. But how does that happen, and how can that change my life in a a deeper, more profound way? Be with us tonight, I pray, Lord. Our attention, our focus is on you, because you are all that matters. It's in your name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. So let's go back, back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, back to the famous camel hair coated, leather belted, honey and locust for lunch, voice in the wilderness, John the Baptizer. This is what it says in John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when you think about a lamb, you probably think of something tender and gentle, meek and, and mild and fluffy, you know, a young, cute sheep. I think about the first time that my wife Tara and I went on a date. Now, there's some contention whether this was a date or an official date or whatever. I picked her up in my grandfather's big old white Chevy Silverado longbed truck and we go to a Greek restaurant that is no longer in business. And uh, I was a picky eater back then, I still kind of am, but uh, I ordered pita, chips, and hummus, you know, something safe. And she blew me away because this is what she ordered lamb. And I thought, you gotta be kidding me. How could you? I mean, lamb? Don't you know that Jesus is the Lamb of God? She was lucky to get a second date, you know. Because that's how it works, you know. And a couple years ago, uh, we were at a family gathering at Easter, Easter lunch. And you know what was on the menu? Of all days, Easter, Lamb. The Lamb of God. It's a title that describes the sinless character and sacrificial nature of Jesus. It's a phrase that packs in itself concepts of innocence and voluntary sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, effective obedience, and get this, it directs. Our eyes to the events of Passover. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, fast forward to John chapter 19. Here's how he does it John 19 28a. Jesus, here he's on the cross, knew that his mission was now finished, or as the Greek says, to tell us die. A Greek verb translated to be finished comes from the root "tell" and it carries the meaning of reaching the end, or the aim. To telestai, to be finished, reaching the end, or aim, is best described by an old pirate's telescope. You know, maybe you've seen one of these before, played with one. It unfolds and extends out one section, one stage at a time, to function at full strength, full capacity, full effectiveness. That's what it means that his mission was now finished. Jesus has gone the distance, finished and fulfilled and reached the end or aim. His ministry has unfolded since the very beginning, extended out one section, one stage at a time to function at full strength, full capacity, and full effectiveness. Verse 28b says, And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Well, what scripture is he here fulfilling? Uh, it could be Psalm uh, 69, verse 21, which reads, But instead they give me poison for food. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. Or Psalm twenty two fifteen, 15. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. Either or or both. Are both fulfilled by his words, I am thirsty. We had heard earlier in the Gospel of John in in chapter 7 how Jesus is the living water. So it's kind of ironic here that now Jesus, the source of living water, says, I am thirsty. But there's a lot more going on here. More to do with Jesus finishing and fulfilling and becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 29 continues A jar of sour wine was sitting there. In Latin, this cheap wine was called pasca, it was basically a diluted, watered down vinegar wine, the drink of slaves. And soldiers, what was it doing here? Well, the Roman execution squad. These soldiers probably had it nearby. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. It might not seem like much, but it sure might be. Matthew and Mark call it a reed. But John... The author of John calls it hyssop, the branch that gets extended with a sponge on top for Jesus to quench his thirst. Well, hyssop is a small fragrant bush native to southern Europe and the Middle East. And it's used actually for medicinal purposes, an antiseptic like Neosporin, a cough reliever like a cough drop, and a mucus clearer like Mucinex. That's great, but what actually interests me most about hyssop is how it gets used in Exodus to describe the Passover instructions. Here's what it says in Exodus 12, 21 through 23. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go pick out a lamb or young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin. Then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and sides of the door frames of your houses. And no one may go out through the door until morning. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on top and sides of the door frame, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his death angel, or some translations read destroyer, to enter your house And strike you down. So the fact that hyssop branches get used in Exodus and in John with the connection to the Passover lamb. Is it just a coincidence? I think not. I think perhaps the author of the Gospel of John is directing our eyes to the events of Passover. I'll break this down a little bit more. Hyssop and John and the book of Exodus. In in Exodus, the death of the lamb and its blood smeared by these hyssop branches means protection from death. While in John, the hyssop branch is an image used in connection with the death of the lamb of God, whose death means protection from eternal death for those who believe. Now, you could call it a stretch. You could yawn and just do that, you know. But at the very least, at the very least, the hyssop branch directs our eyes to the Passover and its events and Exodus, which is the story of slavery and death and freedom, which is the story of the gospel, slavery and death and freedom. Another interesting note about these hyssop branches, they're used all over the Old Testament when it comes to priestly duties, purification duties of the Israelite priest. So at the very least, it directs our eyes to the realm of priests and purification and sacrifice. So then what's up with all of this purification, priestly language stuff when it comes to Jesus' death? I think it has everything to do with Jesus finishing and fulfilling and becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30 says, When Jesus had tasted it, that is the wine, he said to Telesti. here we see it again, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, the full extent of Jesus' love is not merely seen in his love for the poor, or the healing of the sick, or the mending of the broken, or the inclusion of the outsider, or the forgiveness of the guilty, or the humble service of washing feet. The full extent of Jesus' love is shown by his sacrificial death on the cross. He said, To us, I, it is finished. But what exactly is finished and how? Well, you tell me. Go ahead and talk to the people around you at your table and explore the question, what is finished in the death of Jesus? I don't know if you guys were here when we had our passion drama this year or the the previous year, but... uh, There was a new scene that we added at the very beginning of the drama and it was really hard for me to pull this off because here I have to come out cold turkey from the very beginning, come out with like tears. And it was like a super intense moment where I'm supposed to be reflecting on the cross here during our our passion drama. And I'm supposed to come out with tears, which is just really hard to come just dry, like right out there. So I have to watch YouTube videos in the back of like sad things and all that, trying to get some tears going. Not like Jeff. He can just cry like, you know, in a heartbeat, which is not a bad thing. But I really wish during those like two, uh, two... during those two events that I could, I could cry right there. Uh, this year it didn't go so well, but I, I come out and I'm, I'm supposed to be in tears and reflecting on the cross saying, it, it, it is finished? It is finished? But what? What? Jesus, and I go through this whole monologue. What is finished? And then I come to this point where I say, well, you were finished, Jesus. But you know what? You notice Jesus doesn't say, I am finished. No, 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 no. That would imply that that he died defeated and exhausted. But no, he cries out, it is finished, meaning I've completed the work I came to do. Jesus isn't just saying that, oh, yeah, I'm about to die, everybody. He's declaring he's fulfilled God's will. He's finished the work of providing redemption completely, and it now stands fulfilled and finished. Nothing more is needed or needs to be done this finished work of Jesus is the basis for our salvation it is finished it is paid in full receipts have been found uh, by archaeologists uh, written on pieces of papyrus from the 1st century recovered in this area and you know what's interesting these receipts for taxes they have one word inscribed over them to tell us die. It is finished or paid in full. At the cross, Jesus was taking our place at the cross. He was taking our curse, clothing us and tearing heaven open for us. At the cross, sin and death and shame and doubt and rejection and fear are also finished too. Yeah, but why don't they feel finished in my life? deal with fear and doubt and all those things, those sinful habits and attitudes, well maybe maybe we haven't put them to death we're keeping those sinful habits and attitudes on life support the ventilators hissing the heart rate monitor rises and falls steady and rhythmic keeping those sinful habits attitudes alive you know when I was in college a freshman in college I really thought I knew everything but I'm convinced I think Alyssa actually does you know she came up here tonight and she she said if you're gonna clap give her more than a golf clap come on She said, and I, like wrote, I heard it, I'm like, mm, that's good, I better write that down. She said, God, God not only forgives my sin, but also sets me free from them. And I think that's true in all of our lives, or should be true, that God sets us free. But there is some work that we have to do. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, So put to death, that means kill. Put to death, this is like a command to us to do this. Like, yeah, Jesus already paid it all. It's fulfilled, it's finished. But Paul writes, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater. Worshiping the things of this world Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious malicious behavior, slandered and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature in all its wicked ways. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Jesus finishes, fulfills and becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he is all that matters. Verse 31 says it was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover week. Because, yeah, you know, we wouldn't want uh, to look at these bodies and stuff. We we want it to look all good with all of our Passover decorations we got at Michael's. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. Because Pilate, you know, we're kind of like, on a time crunch here. You know, it's a day of preparation for the Sabbath and Passover. We need those bodies down by 6 p.m. sharp. Imagine having that conversation with Pilate. Like, oh, no, you go. You go tell him. Like, oh, yeah, Pilate, uh, can we kill these people a little faster? Can we, can we you know, speed up the death? Pro-? That would be an awkward conversation. But interestingly enough, they're actually obeying The law. Deuteronomy 21 22 through 23a says If someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and hung on a tree, the body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day, for anyone who is hung is cursed in the sight of God. But that ain't how the Romans do it. The Romans just leave the corpse on the cross serve as a method of crime prevention. Verse 32 says, The soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. In Latin, this breaking of the legs was called crurifragium and was done with a heavy mallet or sledge. It would speed up their deaths because the victims there on the cross, they need their legs in order to push up so they could exhale and breathe out. By breaking their legs, they would no longer be able to exhale, so they would just suffocate to die. So verse 33 and 34 says, But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear. One of them gives this exploratory stab to see if Jesus would recoil or or jerk. But if not, he's dead. So the soldier pierces his side and it says, And immediately blood and water flowed out. The blood here directs our eyes to the events of the Passover. The Passover lamb and sacrificial Procedures. According to the sacrificial procedures in the Mishnah, which is like the, the Jewish oral tradition of rabbinic literature, the blood of the sacrificial animal or, or the lamb should not be allowed to congeal or thicken or, or, or clot, but should flow forth freely at the instant of death. So that it could be used for sprinkling and all of their purification rituals. It's actually procedure, standard procedure, that the priest is to pierce the heart of the sacrificial victim, the lamb or the goat, and cause the blood to come forth. But now, it wasn't just the blood flowing out, but immediately blood and water flowed out. What does this mean? Typically, people would experience death by crucifixion in one of two ways, hypovolemic shock or asphyxiation. During hypovolemic shock, severe blood and fluid loss makes the heart unable to pump enough blood to the body, so the prolonged rapid heartbeat would cause fluid to gather in the area around the heart. It's a medical condition called pericardial Effusion, this water surrounding the heart or fluid surrounding the heart. During asphyxiation, a person is unable to breathe in enough oxygen or breathe out, exhale enough carbon dioxide to survive. So a buildup of fluid in the same way can gather in the area around the heart, a condition called pericardial effusion. So when the soldier pierces the side of Jesus with a spear, immediately blood and water flowed out. What does this mean? I think the spear actually pierces this pericardial effusion, this sack of fluid around Jesus' heart. And the fluid then is released, presenting the image of blood and water flowing out. Okay, big deal. Didn't come here tonight for a science lesson or anatomy or anything like that. But you know what? Recent heart studies suggest that pericardial effusion is common with patients who experience what's called takotsubo cardiomyopathy, which is broken heart syndrome. These are the experiences of someone who is experiencing a broken heart. It's actually a condition you can experience. This is all to say that Jesus knows better than you or I ever could what it means to have a broken heart. That Jesus literally and physically died from a broken heart. Verse 35 through 37 says, This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. And then here we've got two scriptures fulfilled. These things happen in fulfillment of the scriptures that say not one of his bones will be broken fulfilling Exodus 12:46 and Numbers 9:12 which talks about the unbroken bones of the Passover lamb and they will look on the one they pierced fulfilling Zechariah 12:10 which reads then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son They will grieve bitterly for him as a firstborn son who has died. Each are fulfilled in the passion of Jesus because he was pierced and his bones weren't broken. In his death, Jesus has become the Passover lamb. The ultimate image of sacrifice, atonement, and freedom. Jesus finishes and fulfills and becomes the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he is all that matters. You know, it would be great to leave tonight on a hopeful note. But it's strange that we are here entering into a portion of scripture where Jesus has died. And it must have been like all the good in the world was being snuffed out. The disciples scatter. They must be thinking, man, it was all just, it was a wild ride. You know, three years we spent together ministering, seeing people experience God in a powerful way. Blind people seeing, crippled people walking, dead people rising. But now it's all finished. It's all finished because Jesus, you died. And you know, we know the end of the story, right? So that gives us reason for hope. But when we place ourselves in the shoes or in the sandals of these early believers, these early followers of Jesus, it must have just been a crushing, heartbreaking blow. And I know that we live in a world where sometimes we forget about the other side of The pain and heartbreak. Sometimes it feels like life is what the disciples were experiencing. Jesus is dead or I don't experience him or God's not real or whatever it is. And we forget about the whole resurrection that is to come. What do we do when we do that? It's like amnesia. We just forget who God is. Fall apart, fall back into sinful attitudes and behaviors. But no, we are a people who are living in hope. For we believe and we trust in what the scriptures say about our God that death wasn't the end, that he gave his life, that it wasn't taken for him. You know what? The other day I had this interesting thought. I think it was last Wednesday. As I was coming to church, where it's like I'm talking about someone that I have never seen with my own eyes. I'm reading uh, manuscripts or, or or texts of of secondhand accounts of people who were faithful, people who followed this Jesus that I, I have I have never seen. I, I have never had a face to face with. I have never. Experience, but that's wrong, right? Because that's where our faith is built, in realizing that our entire lives and all that really matters is based on this Jesus, this Jesus who loves us enough to go to the cross and give his life as a sacrificial offering for you and me, taking away our sins and saving the world. That gives me so much hope and so much purpose. And I'm so blessed to have the the opportunity to be where I'm at, to actually call this a livelihood. I remember talking with a a man who passed away some years ago, and his spiritual gift was helping people to find their spiritual gifts. And I was a couple years into into ministry on staff at a church. I I was about uh, Alyssa's age where I knew everything, right? But I didn't. I wasn't like her. And, uh, but I knew this. And I told him, I said, Steve, I just feel like I, I can't find value and worth in other jobs. It's not that there isn't any value or worth in, in doing another job. It's just that for me, I feel in my heart that there's nothing more worthwhile than doing what I feel God is calling me to do. And he's like, yeah, I think you're called to doing this. And sometimes... We need to be reminded of that. We need to come back to the place where we just we just are enveloped in the passion and the love of Jesus to realize the simplicity of it. Simple words, it is finished. It is finished. Your old life, your old sinful self, walk out of here realizing that it is finished. And now we have something new to look forward to life with Jesus everlasting. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that in this new life, it doesn't matter who we are or how we feel or what job we may have. All we know is that you are all that matters and that you live in us, and that gives us great hope. And as we remember your death and the sacrifice on the cross for us, the Passover sacrifice, the Passover lamb that you became to pour out your grace and mercy on us to take away the sins of the world, we are grateful and we could never thank you, but we can do this. We can give you our lives, expend ourselves, really, truly realizing that that it's worth it to live for you, that you are all that matters, And when we truly believe that, that you are all that matter, it affects the way that we live. It affects the way we love people and serve people and put them first, not last. But we put ourselves last and secondary and we put you first in all things, Jesus. So send us out, leaving our sinful habits and ways and desires and attitudes behind. Let us be refreshed as with the cleansing of hyssop, as the priests in the temple would clean and purify, clean and purify us tonight, Lord. Let us leave this place a little bit lighter, a little bit more focused, and a whole lot more loving. I thank you for these people, Lord, these friends of mine who are more like family. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.